Hello, welcome to the uh, Theology Pugcast. This is uh, C.R. Wiley, and we are broadcasting, like we do every week, from the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. Just want to say a couple things before uh, we go around the table and introduce ourselves. One of the things is that uh, our Kickstarter campaign, as listeners know, uh, was successfully funded. Not only was it successfully funded, we actually got the funds. And we use them to purchase equipment, and it'll be arriving any day now. So you'll probably, or at least we hope, notice a difference in the quality of the sound in weeks going forward. But anyway, so there's that. And the other thing that we wanted to to let you know is we're now part of the uh, Feast Laugh, no, the Fight Laugh Feast Network, the FLF Network, uh, that uh, includes Cross Politic and a number of other great shows. And uh, our first episode was uploaded onto the FLF Network this week. Uh, probably for the next month or two, we're going to be uh, continuing to, to uh, upload our show on Mondays at the current site that we've been using. But over time, uh, we hope that people will subscribe on the new uh, server with CrossPolitik so that we uh, will have uh, at some point just one uh, posting a week, and that'll be on Thursdays. So anyway, just uh, if you would, if you're a regular listener to our, our program, to our, our podcast, uh, if you would uh, look up Cross Politic on your favorite podcast broadcast service, I'm sure you'll be able to find it, and subscribe there, and you'll get the uh, Theology podcast twice a week but at least you'll be ahead of the, the game and uh, ready for when we make that final transition down the road. Anyway, that's it for, for that. We've got some of the housekeeping out of the way, and now it's time to introduce ourselves. So, uh, Tom, why don't you start? Um, Tom Price, um, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, and teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester and the author of uh, Household and the War for the Cosmos, which uh, is coming out in just a few weeks. I got the word on that just recently, and it's up on Amazon, so you can pre-order it. Anyway... Uh, it's Tom's week, and in case you're wondering why the noise in the background is a little bit more, uh, or a little louder today, we're uh, in the part of the pub that we uh, were before, the back room uh, where we were uh, in the most uh, recently in the past few weeks is shut off, and there's no air conditioning back there, and it's pretty hot today. <laughs> Which leads into our discussion. <laughs> so tell us what we're talking about, Tom. Well, in a way, we're picking up with what Glenn and uh, wonderfully introduced last week a lot of enchantment, but what do we do with uh, the true enchantment, uh, that is the uh, supernatural vision of the Bible as Christians in a world in which not only has there been a consistent attempt to to, disenchant the world from such an idea and such a, a view, but also the fact that we live in a time in which um, technology has advanced and the sciences have advanced um, to a, a level in which, you know, the question about how do we live out this enchanted supernatural vision in a world that's been radically reshaped by a certain understanding of technology and science. Um, so we, for example, are not going to be in the other room carrying out our, our, our podcast. 
and all of this stuff is invested deeply in technology, but one of the reasons is there is no air conditioning working. <laughs> so you could say sort of enchantment, you know, what, what of enchantment in a world uh, that has air conditioning or a refrigerator or um, a computer or an iPhone or right. any of these things. Now, I'm going to really be just tying together a lot of things we've done in the past for, for new listeners who may not have had a chance to catch up. This will be the introduction for them to some of the themes we've already discussed, and maybe they can go back to previous uh, casts and listen to these themes. Um, but it's also going to try to tie, tie them together and kind of take a, a, a new focus, because I do think these are pressing concerns for the church, um, its mission, its, its witness in the world, and actually the kind of the larger vision that it offers, um, the, the creation. And so we're going to be picking up some of those, those themes. Um, one of the th- ways into it is, is sometimes the kind of complicated relationship that Christianity in the West has to the advancement of science and, and technology in particular. We've, we've dealt with this uh, in, in different, uh, different uh, talks in the past. Um, and tied to that, of course, is a lot of the goods that have come, the ways in which we've been able to make advances, to communicate in ways. Uh, I was just reading in uh, Dave Noble's book, The Religion of Technology, that Jonathan Edwards, it, he, was a, he was at a certain time where there was a lot of hopefulness. The sort of millenarian views were such that uh, progress is really heading towards a kind of, uh, you know, a, a fuller, complete vision. The fulfillment of things was at hand, in a sense, and that, that we were advancing and advancing and advancing to a state, and technology was one of the means through which that was happening. And so Edwards, for example, thought that a wonderful thing because it was going to enhance our ability to have more spirituality in our life, to have more time for spiritual things oh, okay. in our life. So he, he was kind of thinking about it in the, in the sense that maybe... Uh you know, people who are advocates for the liberal arts yeah. who say you need leisure. You know, in other That's words, right. you can't be, uh, you know, out digging ditches all day and you know enjoy. You know, good literature at the same time. You know, that's, it, right. Yeah, that's you know, right. That's why you need other people to addict to <laughs> it so right. you can enjoy good literature. Although I do think he was around at a time where people would plow and read the New Testament and the Greek at the same time. But oh, we, yeah. we can't all have that. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I, I think that that's true, and I and I think that um, there was a certain hopefulness all around. A lot of the Enlightenment ideas were coming in. There were advances in science. There were these things were there, and then it was also matched by. A, a, a sort of a, a rigorous spiritual moral vision that Edwards was steeped in. So you could see those things connected and very, very... You wouldn't see the things we see now, for example. Yeah, it, it's also worth noting that the word science did not mean then what it means now. Mm-hmm. The Latin scantia simply means uh, a field of study, um, a, a yeah. subject in which there's some sort of methodology for learning it. Mm-hmm. What they call, what we call science, they call natural theology or natural philosophy. Yeah, yeah. And if you go to the transactions of the Royal Philosophical Society, which was the premier scientific institution of the day, but you'll notice it's a philosophical society, what you'll find over and over again are scientific treatises where the last section are the spiritual and moral lessons to be drawn from them. Yeah. There was no sense of a distinction between the two. Which is an interesting thing to maybe explore, yeah. was the sort of the loss of that concurrent with the loss of the terminology. In other words, when we think of natural theology or natu- you know, natural philosophy, it seems to me to, to have a, an integrated 
sort of approach that we've lost. Right, and that happens in the 19th century. Yeah. That's when science, or simply knowledge, yeah. gets reduced to only the natural world, only things that are empirically verifiable. And, right. and that gets tied back to the time in which, right after Aquinas, you start to see in Neo, Thomistic thought, right. stuff indebted to it, Aquinas, but taken in new directions, this notion of a, a autonomous nature start to develop. Right. Because if nature, therefore, can you know, is seen almost in, in a completeness apart from the creator, you start to see how deism can show up very quickly. Right. Because once nature has, um, within its own intrinsic capacities, mm-hmm. this ability to almost unfold, all of a sudden the, the self-sufficiency, which alone belonged to the creator, now belongs to the creation. The creation almost becomes the complete picture. What do you need a god for at that point, other than to wind it up or, or get it rolling or, or you know create the, the, the structure or ends for it? And by the way, that's that would be a great episode someday to talk about neo-Thomism and how that in the minds of many reformed people is Thomism. Yes, I think, yeah, I think, I mean, what you see Ventil rightly objecting to when he thinks of Thomism um, is really this neo-Thomism, this right. that you have an autonomous reason, an autonomous human nature. Right. Now, there is a distinct thing with it. I mean, this is part of what Aristotle helped the church kind of... Right. Um, pull out those aspects of its doctrine of creation. It allowed them to see that there is an order of secondary causality. There, there is... Uh, Which is right there in the Westminster. Right in the Westminster. Talk about Pure that. indebtedness to that. Yeah, there's yeah. no conflict with, with uh, Thomas and, and Westminster on, on those issues. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, that, that sort of sets that, that table. And so eventually they're, they're, they're held together, and it'd be interesting to know how they still held together even when that kind of the classical right. Christian understanding of right. them was starting to be pulled out from under it. Right. Well, probably the best example, I think, arguably, of it being held together and going coming back to our theme of enchantment yeah. is Isaac Newton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Newton, who is considered, you know, the, after Einstein, the greatest physicist in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, universal gravitation, uh, laws of motion, unifying terrestrial and celestial dynamics, on and on and on. All of the, the optics, all of these things that he does. He actually spent more time writing on alchemy and bizarre theological speculation than he did on what we would define as science. Science, yeah. In his mind, the two of them went together. Right. Yeah. yeah. The, the 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 magical view of the world mm-hmm. was in no way in conflict in any sense with what he found in studying the physical universe. And it's interesting, man. It, 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 that kind of brings to mind, and I'm kind of moved that way. But what Paul Tyson. Um, who wrote an excellent book, Returning to Reality, Christian Platonism for Our Times. I'll kind of go back to that. But he mentions the difference between what he'll call one-dimensional reality versus sort of three-dimensional. These are his own terms, but his point is, is Newton was still holding together the integral um, connection between spirituality, morality, and the physical dimensions of reality. Whereas the one dimension, which really becomes reductive and, and starts to become sort of stuff, one stuff that, that things are made of, principally matter and energy combined, or, or matter, how, how you look at it. And so he was still holding to that because he didn't, you know, Newton did not see that there was, you were, he saw a fuller vision of reality. And because of that, he was allowed to talk, look at the physical dimensions of reality, but see as equally important and as related to the moral and spiritual. 
And, um, and this is sort of what starts to increasingly become problematic as you see sort of a, a, a more one-dimensional aspect start to take over. And yet, as you do with emergent worldviews, ironically, this allows a space for all these different kinds of yeah. worldviews to pl- pivot off of this this kind of naturalism or, or materialism. That's yeah, another episode. A monism. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we're using a lot of big philosophical terms. So we're trying to say that what is driving a lot of the current um, challenges that uh, confront the church as it tries to live its vision out in the West are very philosophical and theological at root. Right, right. And at the heart of that really is a complete different reality picture. And this is what we've been talking about with worldview and metaphysics right. at, the, right. at the heart of that. And so one of the things we were talking about last week, we were talking about sort of classical understandings of enchantment and the way in which Christianity uh, aligned itself with this and then kind of carved out its distinct understanding of that in distinction from the others, and yet not throwing, I'm going to use a, a, a reformed metaphor, not throwing the baptismal, the baby out with the <laughs> baptismal water. <laughs> Baptists may not appreciate that. <laughs> but yeah. I think that's what is happening. Right, right, right. What are those doing together in the Baptist friend? So, um, one, one thing you, we, we might want to do for those who haven't been keeping up is um, well, first of all, encourage them to keep up. But along with that, we might want to talk about what we mean when we're using the word enchantment, right. because I think people aren't aren't uh, uh, aren't caught up. They they're probably lost at this point. At this point, I'll let yeah. you handle that yeah, because you just nice you that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, when we're using the word enchantment, we're really uh, uh, picking it up primarily from a guy named Max Weber, who was a uh, a social scientist in the 19th century uh, who talked about the world becoming disenchanted by modernity. And by that he meant that it was really stripped of meaning, that what happened is that in the wake of science, uh, you know, scientism really, there was little to nothing left that we could point to that provided meaning, that provided significance, that provided purpose, any of those kinds of things. All we were left with was bare facts. Right. And facts by themselves don't convey meaning. Right. So, yes. so the idea of disenchantment is stripping the world of, this, of its meaning by reducing it to simply matter and energy and the interactions of, of particles and things like that. When we talk about an enchanted world, we're not speaking literally of magic. We're speaking metaphorically of magic, but not literally. It's it's a world in which there is meaning, there is purpose, there are unseen things at work. There are things that are not measurable by science that are true and real and that are important, vitally important for human life. Which explains why metaphysics and theology are central to that vision. Exactly. Yeah, it was kind of famously put, uh, and you hear it sometimes uh, framed this way even today, facts and values. Mm-hmm. Yet, basically, you've got uh, facts which are verifiable and observable, things that uh, science can measure. And then you have values which are subjective, yeah. which we project onto things. And you can kind of see the entire you know, sort of crisis in, <laughs> in Western civilization just to cut through that dichotomy. You can use that. So yeah. now, now when we talk about, as we come back to again and again, all the LGBT alphabet soup stuff, 
uh, you know, gender is, is, is a value that we project upon uh, our bodies. It's, it's a socially constructed thing. It's not just purely, you know, an individual thing. Although there is a, a desire to make it a entirely individual thing and then yeah. require everybody else to go along. But anyway, uh, but, but that... But yeah, just to be clear, we're not really obsessed with the LGBT stuff. <laughs> it's just that it is such a good illustration of so many of the things yeah. we're talking well, about. I think yeah. it is the, the kind of... Yeah, it, 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 it brings all this into a concentrated point of reference, I think. Yeah. And, I, and I think it's the thing that's woken a lot of people up. Yeah. Because when I would talk to people about the fact-value problem, you know, you'd have evangelical pastors just their eyes would glaze over yeah. because they couldn't see why it mattered. That's right. Now everybody's kind of getting it at last. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is why it matters. It actually makes a difference to family life, to your daily life, all kinds of things. So anyway, go for it, Tom. I, we've gone down a, well, a little detour here. Well, well, no, I think this is right along track. Um, so Tyson actually does, uh, he'll re- reference it to we've, someone we've talked about, Francis Bacon, and we've talked more in a positive light that he's going to probably grant him. Um, but one of the things that he'll go back to Bacon, he may or not be right on historically here, but this does start to develop. He said, um, Bacon is not remembered as a philosopher or a scientist, yet he planted the seed of a great idea that is central to the modern world. Knowledge gives us power over nature. Thus, the central criteria of deciding um, is not, is it true? It becomes, does it work? Right. This kind of pragmatic relationship to, to nature and things and knowledge. And so once this stance is accepted as valid, questions of metaphysics and theology are simply irrelevant to matters of public truth and technological power. Reason and knowledge can now be free from the restrictions and fantasies of speculative thought and religious power. So whatever happens, or whenever it happens, there is this way in which knowledge now becomes associated with power over nature, our ability to harness this power, our ability to use technology and science to do this, and is no longer bound by metaphysical and, and or even moral value questions at this point. It is now free from these restrictions. So his next line is, once we are out of touch with thinking about moral and spiritual reality, it does not take long for us to get out of touch with material reality as well. Think of speculative trading in the non-material bubble worlds possible within cyberspace. The escapism, narcissism, and virtual brilliance of our powerful entertainment industry and a flagrant disregard for the physical environment or the physical body or our embodied natures for that matter on which our very lives depend is also characteristics of our t- of our times. He said, given these dynamics, it seems that the entire edifice of, we- of the Western life form could be cooking up its own spiritual implosion. Right. And so there, there is something that, that, um, that develops alongside the way in which Christianity is starting to find its way with all these changes going on in, in, in you know, Western civilization as it kind of unfolds towards today. And so uh, he has another great quote. He says, For now we have power without wisdom or piety, existence without nobility, lives without any transcendently re- transcendent reference point, birth and death without intrinsic meaning, time and seasons without liturgical reference, holidays without the holy. Now the West has unleashed enormous instrumental and military forces on the globe and has built a set of global structures that facilitate unprecedented economic and material exploitation. But all of this is directed to no common good. 
Right. And the, the term common good raises hackles. Yeah. Particularly with. Yeah. Particularly with uh, the the, the uh, you know the progressive intelligentsia. You, know, you, you said the ter- you use the term common good, and if yeah. you're not talking about something as mundane as plumbing yeah. and sewage, yeah. then then you are you know Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The the thing that I find, uh, I I think that. Historically, it's it's a tad more complicated, of course, than he's presenting. Yeah, uh, there is oh, something. Historians always <laughs> bringing up the yeah. there, there, <laughs> historical facts. There, there, there is something to be said for yeah. Bacon's empiricism, ultimately over time leading yeah. there. I mean, Bacon himself would have disavowed most of that. Yeah. But but there's no question that yeah. he does set in motion things that will eventually move in that direction. Yeah. But but what I find most remarkable about this whole reductive program where yeah. you're you're reducing everything to matter and energy yeah. is what it can't explain. Yeah. So yeah. for example, thought Right. Yeah. How, how, how yeah. do you how do you explain thought? How do you explain ideas? You you, you know they, they somebody I forgot who it was said the brain secretes thought the way the liver secretes bile, <laughs> except bile is a physical substance that you can measure. What do you, where does thought come from? And, what is it? And why in the world would I have taken that even seriously other than just bile? The very you know yeah. eventually yeah. you I mean, end up with that. You know so yeah. so you've got you you they can't even explain thought. They can't even explain where their own ideas come from. They argue that there's no empirical yeah. evidence for a non-physical world, but that argument itself is non-physical. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it just strikes me as being kind of insane. And, well, and then maybe, you know, this is where the kind of postmodern kind of criticism has a little, a little bit of a... They, they see something true despite all of the rest sure. they have that's off. And that there is a hypocrisy there, and it, it really is a sort of projectionism, and it's it's using capital from uh, another worldview, sure, Christian worldview, to talk meaningfully about anything. But it's even worse than that. Yeah. If you go to John Lennox, he will tell you that physicists today can talk about what gravity does, but they have no idea what gravity is. Right. They yeah. don't even know what energy is. Well, we're back to the being question. So... <laughs> Yeah. What does this mean? I mean, you know, the, yeah. e- even even at that level, the emperor has no clothes. Yeah, and I think, but I think what's what maybe this reveals in terms of the emperor having no clothes is that is that there is a, an agenda, and there are certain fears that these people have that if they concede these points, it naturally leads to certain things. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, I think that they're they're definitely afraid of us, mm-hmm. people like us, yeah. who. Uh, have a, a plausible explanation, which is God. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, when the Big Bang was first proposed, it right. was rejected by all the physicists because I believe it was actually a literal quote from one of them. He said, "If you've got a Big Bang, you have to have a Big Banger." That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And so, so what, what this demonstrates then is, uh, a, a, I think, a, a massive, uh, you know, attempt to suppress the truth. Yeah. And. It shouldn't surprise us. The Apostle yeah. Paul told us that's what people are up to. Yeah, that's you know? right. That's but uh, we, I think it also should give us a measure of sort of realism in the sense that when we when we engage people intellectually and and sort of reve- and, and go through the process of revealing the presuppositions that have no basis, the incoherence of the arguments, um, that it doesn't necessarily mean they roll over and, and say, "I give up." You know, in That's fact, right. what it means is that they probably change the subject 
and get nasty. Yes, that's right. <laughs> well, and yeah, you know, and the, the the point of bringing up some of the things I just did oh, yeah. is we're right back to enchantment. Yeah. As soon as you start talking about meaning, yeah. as in our thoughts, our words, all of these kinds of things. You are in, in Weberian terms, you're in an enchanted world. Right. Yeah. And, and this, this here is actually what uh, Paul Tyson in his book, Returning to Reality, wants to pick up on. And I know he gave these lectures with Ken Myers' uh, right. project at Mars Hill Audio, the um, Areopagus lectures, yeah, Ari- which are excellent for those who have the chance to listen to it. But one of the things he starts to do is to, he go, returns to C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. And he talks about the way in which we think, uh, I mean, the way in which the West sort of um, presents its secularism or its, you know, pure naturalism or whatever, this one-dimensional understanding of reality that everything has to reduce itself to, which is usually um, something that does not have meaning, purpose, all that built into it. Um, One of the things that he says about that is that is just the, the current you know, sort of evil charm, I mean, the evil spell that's been cast upon the West. And the whole goal, just like, you know, the people going to, you know, Aslan's mission to actually free uh, the Prince of Narnia, Rillian, um, is to to send the church into the world, basically, to, to help, you know, Help get the elect out of the silver chair. Right, 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 yeah. right. And and the in the silver chair, one of the things that they argue, or that the the witch argues, is that you know you've never really seen the sun. What you've seen are my the lights, the candles here, and just sort of projected something bigger and better, which is exactly the of course the argument that's used about God. Yes, and the fact that they she can make this argument and it sounds plausible doesn't make it true. And she does it with well. So Aslan, she says, no, there is no lion. These are the things they were assured of. No, this there is no lion. It's just a cat. <laughs> yeah, that, that you've made you've made bigger and stronger. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. yeah. And so yeah, by you you know that that was one of the things. But it, it was old puddle gum. Who defies? Anyone want to tell the audience oh, yeah. who that is? Oh, yeah. Puddle, it's puddle glum or gum? Puddle glum. Puddle yeah, glum. Yeah. yeah, he's kind of like a frog-like creature <laughs> and very morose. Uh, kind of lives in the sort of a uh, swampy area. Uh, Tyson said he's sort of like the Scottish Presbyterian. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And McPhee is also that way, except he was an atheist. But uh, different books. Yes, that's right. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, well, Lewis had a very, uh, I think, sort of sympathetic um, place in his heart for the honest rationalist. Yeah, yeah. So the honest rationalist was somebody who who saw the holes in arg- anyone's argument. That's right. Not, not just his, you know, his arguments or his team's arguments, but just any argument. And he would see the holes in an atheist argument and honestly point them out. Yeah. Even if he was an atheist. Yeah, that's right. So that kind of uh, dour and but and, and very uh, incisive and realistic cast of mind is very rare. It is. And I, yeah. I've, I don't know if I've even come across a living specimen. Yeah. <laughs> Not when you get close. That's when, when, when you start to get, the argument starts to get close, it, right. that, maybe that's where the defenses go. Right, right. <laughs> but, but anyway, Puddleglum is uh, able to see through the witch's arguments. Yep. So that's, that's, uh, and, and he's kind of the dose of realism. That and he's the one who holds out, and actually, to the point of, as Tyson will say, to the point of looking insane. Yeah. 
if that's the stance you need to take against the, 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 the sort of technique of the witch to keep that spell going. Um, so he puts it this way. He goes, when Pudlegum defies the spell of the witch by acting on his crazy metaphysical stance, he becomes impervious to the technologies of enchantment. The witch is set in place, and he threatens the entire realm of illusion she spun in order to entrap their minds. She's forced out of her sweet and patronizing disguise, then in reverts to open violence as her true nature is unmasked. And he says, Lewis here is pointing out, as does Plato, that there are powerful vested interests at work that make the matter of the outlook of reality one believes probably the most significant issue in relation to how the norms and laws in the political context in which we live and work. Metaphysics is never simply metaphysics. It's always politics, commerce, technology, morality, religion, art, and knowledge. So what we assume to be the nature of reality what metaphysical beliefs we're committed to is a matter of the utmost practical and political significance. And that's, that's, a, that's a, a great point and one that uh, often people are, find difficult to follow. Yeah. You know, often people will you know, dismiss metaphysics as that sort of realm of abstraction that can't uh, have, have any significance to the way we live our lives. Yeah. But anyone who sort of presses through the, the, you know, sort of the challenges that present themselves to understanding metaphysics and, and is able to, to make the connections understands that everyone has a metaphysic. That's right. And everyone's uh, metaphysic informs everything about their lives. That's right. Uh, so you know, everything from, your, as he notes, politics to you know, uh, approach to, to understanding art or whatever, entertainment. And, and technology in particular is driven by certain metaphysics. And it's usually a shared metaphysic, even if they don't couldn't all sit down and, and articulate it the same way. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, this is something Heidegger was on to, Elio, other, other uh, figures, the way in which it had started to already move, as we talked about before, away from a consideration of, of our indebtedness to being, yeah. truth, beauty, and goodness. And so when it actually starts to serve as sort of a, a way in which we harness power to master nature and transcend it through our own um, wills, wishes, and wants, and these will, wishes, or wants are really not contained by anything, mm-hmm. um, then we sort of enter into that spell that has been cast on us. And so I think it's even hard. I mean, for me, I've just been starting to think about the relation of spirituality, theology, and technology in particular. Um, in new ways, because I, I don't think yet I am able to discern the depths of which we are indebted to it, and that spell sits over us. Yeah. I think, again, I can understand in the realm of like bioethics and places where it sort of seems as a Christian very obvious, right. but the way in which relationships are continuously refashioned, uh, the way in which even like the phone just yeah. disrupts Right. A lot of things. Not that there aren't goods. I mean, I can call and see on a picture sure. my mom and, you know, five yeah. states away. Beautiful thing. But on the other hand, I can also, uh, there's a lot of things that yeah. d- that, that take away, that, that don't lend towards what Edwards was hoping. Right. Rather than me being, you know, more spiritual and more contemplative and practicing silence yeah. and the spiritual practices yeah. of my devotion and, and, and piety. They actually become means of distraction. Yeah, you become um, shallower. Shallower, yeah. yeah I can yeah. read, you know, and it doesn't mean there aren't goods. We can yeah. inform in ways. I think articles that right. we publish and share, I think I, I would never have access to that material if others weren't right. doing it. Um, and it's not, again, I think that's way down the road. Um, Tyson's point is the, the, re- the real way in which a Christian has to get a hold of this is on the metaphysical level. And he sees this as part of what real repentance is 
is not the renewal of the mind is not merely just subscribing to a new set of propositions, but it is actual reality reconfiguration right. in which um, the created order as its finality is in Christ, you know, resurrection and, and seated at the right hand of the Father, that, uh, that all the hidden riches and measures are to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so for the church, we have an alternative, um, alternative uh, metaphysical vision. And that, that is something, because we took it for granted for so long that we lived in sort of a, a Christendom, or it's right, the outpost, right, right. that we assumed that that was shared by everyone, and all we had to do was talk redemption. Right. Well, hello. Yeah, hello, hello, that's right. <laughs> Welcome to metaphysical, the need for metaphysical right. conversion. Right. Well, one yeah. of the things I'm doing in the series I'm writing for Breakpoint right now in Emerging Worldviews is, okay, my... You, I've got a couple of sort of idiosyncratic definitions of worldview, but one of the most important, I think, in terms of worldview assessment is your worldview is what you do by default. Sure. Right. That that demonstrates what your real worldview is. That's, that's very similar to what Charles Taylor would call a social imaginary. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's your default. It's yeah. your default. Right. You know, for mm-hmm. you, you mentioned yeah, some so people describe it as the you know the you know the fish in the in the water. You know, the idea yeah. that you know when someone asks the fish how's the water and the fish says what water. <laughs> you know, the fish doesn't know it's wet. Yeah. Right. Um, the yeah. but that's good. what that means is that the way that we live is a reflection of our worldview, but I'll take it a step further. Our worldview is changed by how we live, not by how we think. Yeah, yeah. You, you obey your way into a new worldview. Yeah, right. Okay. Now, with that in mind, what that points to is the ideas and the values and the things that, that we have in our lives ultimately are going to shape our metaphysical conception and once that happens that shapes other things right so um again going back to our standard lgbt thing let's focus on the t what the t says is that the physical world isn't the thing that determines reality right it's the non-physical, it's the spiritual, it's the world of values or something like that. That's what determines what is real. Mm-hmm. It's essentially a neo-gnostic vision. Yeah, feeling, maybe. Right. Even Cthulhu, as Schleiermacher would call it. Right. Sure. Right. So, mm-hmm. but, but if that's true with regard to something so vitally important as who, to me as who I am sure. or to my identity, how much of that... Worldview. How much of that? How much does that shape my metaphysics? Does that mean that that the world is the way I perceive it? The world is what I feel about it, the, and so on. If you accept that, then what you get is an extraordinarily polarized politics where no one can disagree with you without being either stupid or morally evil. Right. Now, does yeah. that sound vaguely familiar? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the fact is that issues like LGBT or whatever, those don't necessarily start with metaphysics, but they lead to metaphysics, right. Right. and from metaphysics they lead in other directions. Right. Right. In, a, in a very weird positivism almost, it's just sheerly becomes a, a positive a positive force by mere 
self-assertion. Mm-hmm. And that become, that sort of takes on, it's supposed to have this sort of absolute value for which everyone else is somehow to, to, to submit. Right. You know? yeah. and, and if they don't submit, they're the enemy. Right. And that is our politics. Yeah. Right. It's very, uh, now, one of the yeah. things that, of course, as a pastor, I, I, tend to, I tend to reflect on when these sorts of things, you know, uh, you know, are in front of me and I have to think about them is how has the church been complicit? <laughs> maybe not, you know, intentionally, but how, how have we maybe helped to set up the situation? Uh, I think that one of the ways that we've done that uh, is by making too strong a distinction between uh, externals and sort of the, uh, and our piety, which is an internal experience. Yeah. So, and I'm thinking at this at a very popular level, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of popular piety and how people approach it. You know, I'm thinking about things like, you know, my utmost for his highest and that yeah. kind of stuff, uh, where we're encouraged to kind of go inward. Yeah. Now, you know, and it's, I, I know that the Lord, you know, you know, withdrew to pray. That's right. <laughs> These things, and I, and it's important to have spiritual disciplines and, and so forth. That's right. But but there's a kind of a, a sort of a an, an inability that many Christians have to distinguish between the world that God made and the world that we made. So when the Bible uses the term world, yeah, yeah, you gotta kind of look at the context to yeah. see what are we talking about here. So for you know when, when the scripture says for God so loved the world, what's he, what's being referred to? The world that God made. Yeah. <laughs> you know, God loves what he made. Now, and it's uh, good. <laughs> and then when in first John we see, you know, do not love the world. Anyone who loves the, the world, world. <laughs> love of the Father is not in them. Yeah, that's right. Now, now, what's that getting at? Well, yeah. it's the world that we have made or yeah. the world that is ordered or, or misordered or misruled yeah. by Satan. That's right. That's so that's a, that's a different thing. So what are we withdrawing from? We're not withdrawing from the physical world. The physical world is the part of the, it's what God made. It's part of what God made. Mm-hmm. So that means that it bears meaning. It has significance. It's that a I good think thing. that is key because I think a lot of times when, especially in the Reformed and the Evangelical world, we think of the fallenness of of creation. We we only see it in terms of what has happened, what we've made of it. Right. We don't realize that what has been sustained and held and then, and then redeemed and vindicated is not the part we made of it, but the part God had originally made and continued and holds in order. Yep. And this is, I think, the nuance we've been trying to get at in these things when we talk about a mesophysics of creation. We're not talking about an intrinsic capacity of, of the creation in its fallen state. We're talking about God holding together his original creation and vindicating it in... One of the things I've been talking about a lot lately is a Jewish concept, uh, which is uh, the phrase is tikkun olam, which means to heal the world or to repair the world. And the Jews believe this is what God's business is. Okay, And they see this mostly in terms of social justice, it seems. From a Christian perspective, I think that's exactly right. But it's way, way bigger than social justice. The mm-hmm. entire world is broken. Paul says in Romans 8 that the entire creation is subject to futility. Yeah. And when we talk about the kingdom, which is a whole, that's another show. <laughs> but when we talk about the kingdom, the basic work of the kingdom for us right now is tikkun olam. It is to heal the world, to find all of the things that are broken and to fix them. 
And this is the thing that unites historic Christianity, which, you know, was really bifurcated by the creation of the social gospel. Yeah. There was a time when no one distinguished between evangelism and the social gospel. They were all part of kingdom building. Which, which yeah, which interestingly asks and, and the question, you know, in some way we talk about the church's mission to actually bring this, but in, in a sense... You know, it's almost at a situation in which we have to kind of bring it to them first. Mm -hmm. Because there's a way in which this kind of spell has been cast over it that has become fixated on basically not seeing the modern world or the, the, you know, the the new enchantment, the one-dimensional world. They're basically okay with it. Well, this this gets, you know, this again brings you back to, you know, the work of a pastor. You know, there's uh, this sort of uh, fixation on relevance. Yes. Now, the problem with the fixation on relevance is who decides what's relevant. Yeah. So <laughs> what we have now is we have kind of what I, what I call the sort of the water boy approach to pastoral ministry, which is the world that tells us what to do, and then we just try to, to respond. Yeah. So what that means, of course, is that uh, the more faithful we are to the world's understanding of its needs, the further away we're going to get from a biblically informed ethic or approach to life or whatever. We need to, to recover a, a confidence that is so sort of a, uh, profound that we can tell the world, no, you don't even know what's wrong with yourself. <laughs> I mean, let, me, let me tell you what's wrong with you. <laughs> That's interesting. Is it, go ahead. Have you, have you ever read the speech Captain America gave to Spider-Man about this? <laughs> you're, the, you're the second person to tell me about this. You, remind me. You, I've not seen the film. Uh, it's, it's not in the film. It, oh, okay. Well, they, they, they use it. Oh, is in it one in the comic book? The actual it's in, comic book? It's in one of the comics. Oh, okay, great. They, they, they use go back to the, the sources. <laughs> you're a historian. Yeah. You go to the sources. They, uh, they, they, use, they use part of it in one of the movies, I think it's Civil War, but it, it and it's not put in Captain America's mouth. But Spider-Man asks Captain America in the comic, you know, what when, when people think what you're doing is wrong, that that you're the villain, how do you handle this? And Captain America gives him a long speech in which. You know, he talks about his vision of America. You know, you need to stand up for what you believe is truth. And he ends by saying, you know, when it doesn't matter who's telling you you're wrong, it doesn't matter if the whole world is telling you you're wrong. If you believe you're right, it's your job to stand by the river of truth. And when they tell you to move, you say, no, you move. <laughs> And it's, I wonder if Stan Lee wrote that. I, 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 I don't know who wrote it, but it's, it's a great speech. Right, right. You can find it on the internet. I gotta look it look up. It, up. It, is look worth, it, up. it is worth seeing. <laughs> but it's exactly right. what you're talking yeah. about. Right, right, right. I, I don't like Stanley Hauerwas's uh, theology on a lot of things, but I do. Every now and then he pulls a, a, a real gem out of the hat. And I remember during the years uh, Bill Clinton was being tried for lying. And Stanley said, well, he's not a liar because that would assume he had to originally have known the truth. <laughs> and I think he, his point is, is a truthful community, you know, centered in Christ is the only kind. And I think that was one of his fine points. Well, tied to this, is this a great way in? Uh, Tyson makes this point, and he's challenging the church here. He says, if our modern world is basically okay, and modern Western Christians within it can make positive adjustments to how things already are, then everything that uh, we talk about with the metaphysical vision of Christianity and about repentance is basically moonshine. He goes, modern reality is just fine, and we need no fundamental change of mind. 
If, however, modern notions of truth, meaning, personal identity, markets, money, and power are not only going to destroy us, but are fundamentally at odds with the Christian metaphysical vision, then no amount of positive adjustment to the world is going to help, and it's going to help us or it. Fighting pornography, defending Christian notions of the family, running Christian schools and universities, doing Christian marketing, business, entertainment, strategizing, achieving successful ministry targets is just rearranging the deck chairs uh-huh. on the Titanic, if that is all we can do. For the very hope of a basic shift in our civilizational direction, there needs to be an alternative vision of the very nature of reality. So his last line, and I think it's a beautiful challenge of church, do we believe in the medical, metaphysical vision? vision of the church. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think he's probably also kind of getting to metanoia. Yes. You know, because yes. you know, metanoia means a change of mind, and it's the word we translate into the English word repentance. Yeah. But there's a, a, a real sort of poverty of uh, understanding yeah. when it comes to repentance, because uh, what we've done is we've, we've uh, reduced it to simply the moral yeah. And also to the, and I mean moral in terms of the volitional. Yeah. yeah. And and also uh, we've reduced it to sort of like, kind of like the the, the, the crisis of of, of uh, remorse. Mm-hmm. You know, we said, okay, this is this is repentance is when you're really 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 sorry and you even cry yeah. and and then yeah. you, you say, I'm going to change my ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that's all great. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm, yeah. I'm, what I'm saying is that it's an incomplete thing. Yes. The met- metanoia means a change of mind which includes a way of seeing reality, yeah. which is what Tyson's getting at. That's right, that's right. And I mean, you think of Colossians 3, where we're, we're, we're told to consider yourself now, your identity now is hid with Christ in the heavens, in the right. eternals. Right. So therefore, this is how you live, putting off the old, putting on the new. And I think this is sort of the, the, the kind of point about being able to start seeing clearly the relationship of, of the, the spell, the enchanted spell that sits on the one-dimensional reality driving technology today and, and different things and, and creating all these alternative worldviews and the true Christian vision is I do think it's tied to um, this holistic account of reality conversion which is sees the truth of it centered in Christ and his fulfillment of all things and the, and the implications of that for the whole of creation, its vindication and its consummation and shalom. Um, but also then the kind of form of life that matches it, the putting off of the old and the putting on of the new, because this is the refashioning of our loves and reordering of our uh, the structures of reality and to be embody as a different people, uh, basically like Puddlebum, a stubborn, even if we look insane, commitment to a different moral, uh, a metaphysical vision that has been given to us in Revelation. Ken Boa says that if the word does not define you by discipline, the world will define you by default. Ah, that's good. And so, you know, we need to make that conscious effort. We need to have this proper spiritual disciplines in place. We need to study, meditate on the word. We need to do all of these things to internalize it. Otherwise, and we have to do this constantly because otherwise the world is going to win. And it'd be marvelous if we lived in a world where all of the water was Christian. 
<laughs> in other words, that we were, we were fish so that we didn't have to think about these things. That's right. But because it's not, because all of the things that sort of inform our lives and shape our lives, technology, yep. economics, politics, you name it, entertainment, whatever. Remember, for me, you know, it was funny. Uh, one of the things that was, uh, you know, I look back on as being, yeah. I'll have a cider this time. I have the same. Cider. Another cider. Great. So, like, when I remember, for me, a, a big turning point was, I was a, I was a Trekkie as a kid. I mean, I, I remember, like, I was a kid in the 60s when Star Trek came out. Yeah, wow. I've got a picture of me so when, was I was, I. when I was, like, six years old wearing Star Trek pajamas. <laughs> this was, like, 1968 nice. or something like that. Anyway, so, uh, so I, I was just, like... You know, it was like Star Trek is obviously great. And I remember, and I, remember yeah. I, I talked to a guy one time, and, he, and I said, "Hey, are you into Star Trek?" And they said, "No." I was like, "What was what what wrong with that?" Yeah, what was what's wrong that? with it? He said, "Well, I don't I don't buy into the worldview that's being sort of uh, hmm. you know promulgated by Star Trek." And I was like, "Worldview? I thought this was entertainment." Then it, it's occurred to me that there is no such thing as pure entertainment. Yeah. Pure entertainment is like pure nature. nature. Yeah. There is no such thing as pure entertainment. Right. There's always a tacit moral. Yeah. And so what was this, the sort of the worldview of classic Trek? And I yeah. still look kind of a Trekkie. You know? yeah. <laughs> I enjoy the show. Well, it was I'm thought, like a, the upside, you can appreciate something thoughtfully written. You know? yeah. <laughs> or just yeah. phasers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're giving shooting me more weird credit. Thing. <laughs> shooting weird more, thing. more credit than I deserve. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the idea <laughs> that... That it, that it sort of opened up for me, or the thing I, I began to see is that I live in a reality that has, uh, you know, kind of values that I'm immersed in. Yeah, it's the, it's the water thing. So it was it yeah. was by seeing, the, you know, Star, Star Trek for what it is, which was a kind of catechism. Yeah. You could say that Star Trek is a catechesis yeah. into a kind of way of thinking about reality. Mm-hmm. That uh, I began to say, I began to see that I'm already in a kind of reality that I've taken for granted, and I need to start thinking about. So I think for Christians, the, the challenge is. We can never let our guard down, which is what spiritual disciplines are all about. Right. It's never letting the guard down. Yeah, yeah. Never taking things at face value. And, and uh, Charles Taylor, I think he always throws a few interesting things into the mix. Is one of the things he um, brings out is, is, is basically, his. I think he thinks it's pretty much determined this way. But he'll, he'll argue what's happening. He goes, virtu- you know, with this shift to a one-dimensional um, view of reality and, and its strictures. He says, virtually nothing in the domain of mythology, metaphysics, or theology stands in the fashion of earlier ages as publicly available background today. But that doesn't mean there is nothing in any of those domains that poets, he, he only finds poetry basically as the place to yeah, do it, yeah. um, may not want to reach out in order to say what they want to say, no moral sources they decry that they want to open for us. What it does mean is that they're opening these domains in default of being a move against the firm background is an articulation of a personal vision. It is one we might come to partake in as well as a personal vision, but it can never become, again, a working public. Right. So um, I think for him, thank, thank you. you. Um, Thanks. 
for him, there, there isn't a going back. The default has changed. Right. And so what he wants to say is, okay, there may be a kind of, you know, to take on this, this stance of uh, a puddle to where you, you're going to be insistent that this enchantment is not going to get you. Right. Um, it's okay for you or your little group of people, but it's never going to become the, the, the uh, vision of the background again. Yeah. Now, interestingly, Tyson begs the difference. His point is, okay, you can put it in the realm of the poet. He says, okay, because I'm going to argue that basically seeing and acting easily makes abstract, uh, basically is best described by the works of someone like Lewis or Tolkien. Yeah. So really the way back into the ontological vision for Christians is not to kind of play to the flat, pure nature world in which all this stuff is set out or the kind of emerging worldviews, but actually to draw upon the places and sources that led to the thinkers like Lewis Tolkien which, of course, right. was the, the, the full well, classical Christian vision in its medieval. And, and you think of poesis, where we, where we get poetry, it was a much broader sort of category than we normally mm-hmm. consider. Mm-hmm. Today, when we think of poetry, we either think of, say, you know, uh, someone like a Kerouac, you know, so yeah, or we yeah. think of somebody, you know, like, uh, you know, um, you know Robert Frost. We don't <laughs> think about Tolkien yeah. uh, unless he's, like, writing verse. Yeah. But... Any story, because mm-hmm. uh, poesis just means making. Yeah. So any anything that is made that humans make is poetry. Yeah. You know, you can say that the world is poetry because God made it. <laughs> you know, it's it's got a it's got a it's got a, a structure. It's got a meaning. I think. But uh, but I, I get his point. I mean, I think that's that's great. I think uh, that was the genius of the Inklings. They they realized that they couldn't they couldn't win just with you know, abstract arguments. Yeah, they they were very aware that there there was uh, the need to to enter something that prior to the argument, and that's why their return to, to sort of logos and the contents of what they would call mythos, which is basically just in, in the religious theological. That's really placing placing that back there was the way in which the 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 social imaginary the right. default position actually starts the shift, and when that starts first, especially happening within the church and its commitment to the the metaphysical vision we've been given in creation and in Christ, then we start to be able to have the right resources to start discerning the plate, you know, all the place that the, the this this spell has been cast over. Let, let, I, I want to. We're getting close to the time that we need yeah. to wrap up, but let me just throw something out at you. Mm-hmm. I'm a science fiction and fantasy <laughs> kind of guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm not as, as immersed in sort of the contemporary stuff or the, the recent stuff. Uh, as many people are, but I'm a child of the '60s and the '70s, and I and I can recall sort of the emergence of sword and sorcery, kind of in the wake of Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And when you when you and then you saw a kind of a a synthesis with sort of pure science fiction, which would be the Asimov, you know, Heinlein stuff, classic stuff from the '50s and so forth. And in the '70s, you get something like Star Wars. Which has this sort of mythic, yeah. magical component with mm-hmm. the Force. That's I'm right. thinking about the original trilogy. Yeah. They, they ruin it with their sci- scientific explanations yeah. later on with the whatever those little creatures are. That <laughs> but but the but but originally the idea was is here here we have a universe in which we have this this strange group of Jedi who are mystical, and there's this mar- that marvelous scene on this on on the, in the Battle Star, you know where. Uh, you know, one of the one of the advisors to the captain of the of the Battlestar 
you know, is making fun of the Jedi and the Force, and then you see you see Darth I Vader. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Puts <laughs> <laughs> him in his place, and kills him right there, or nearly kills him on the spot. But that that was the thing. So you saw this sort of this kind of integration. Yeah. Of the the technological yes. and the sort of the mythic yes. or the enchanted yes yes uh, yeah uh, metaphysical which I think is what we long for and, and I think uh, uh, it, far removed from that from the different part of the world um, in the or, you know sort of the, the the orthodox tradition would be um, Tarkovsky's work um, Solaris and, oh, yeah, and, yeah. and a lot of the, the way in which yeah. um, transcendence permeates creation of course he ha- uses all this strange imagery the fly. Uh, uh, his uh, his film on Rublev, I think, is phenomenal, where he's at this spiritual state when he's painting the famous icon uh, yeah. the, the Trinity, and he's coming down the church, and he's almost flying. Mm-hmm. But it's the same way in which um, craft, art, all these things didn't he, are... Didn't he make those films in a communist mm-hmm. world context? Yeah. And then he had to <laughs> leave, and I think he ended up in France. He got into they? a certain amount of trouble for yeah. Andre yeah. Rublev. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is worth watching, all of those. <laughs> For that, if yeah. nothing else. That's this right. This is what led to a guy <laughs> getting extra. That's right. Um, but yeah, the, the, these themes are around. Um, you know, I guess that's kind of kind of wrap up with something that's going to lead, I think, maybe into the next episode. Uh, Robin Perry wrote an interesting book. It's called A Biblical Cosmos, A Pilgrim's Guide to the Weird and Wonder. A wonderful world of the Bible, right. and he's really actually after the way in which the Old Testament, particularly, is this completely yeah. enchanted book. Right, right, right. And uh, he's t- he ends this thing, and it's, it's you know I'll try to skim over some of it, but he's talking about at the end the way in which even stones have their ultimate significance in this creation. They're part of life. They're not dead things. They're, yeah, they're significant. Yeah. And he says, "Living stone." He says, "By the way of a final illustration, let me tell you about a couple of trips to Wor- uh, Worcester Cathedral." And he basically meets the guy who builds it, who spent 30 years working stones, and he had a real sense for the soul of stones. He gets them and understands their properties and their beauty. By the look and feel and sound of stones um, that he gets with the chisel, he can get a sense of how to work with them and how not to. But every stone is different, and when he works with them, he is tentative at first, allowing the stone to disclose something of itself as he works on it. In response to the stone's quirks, he modifies his approach. His engagement uh, with the stones was respectful, appreciating their spirituality, and seeking to draw on it, bring it out in the work, all to the glory of God. Hmm. Not long after that, he's in uh, Advent service there with the beautiful cathedral, looking at the candlelit walls and reflecting on the stonemason. He goes, it occurred to me that the craftsmanship of the cathedral's architects and stonemation actually brings out something of the God-directed orientation of stones and the rest of creation. All things come from God, depend on God for their being at each and every moment, and exist for God. As such, even humble stones participate in God and only make sense as they are seen in relation to God. Um, at, and so he kind of talks about yeah. that transcendent calling, but I think that's where the metaphysical vision and craftsmanship yeah. and technology start to give a different picture. Right, right. Looks like Michelangelo said that right. he did not carve the statues. What he did was carve what was already in the stone. The, the interesting, right, revealing, beautiful. But he revealed what was the form. There. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, we need to wrap up. Uh, anything that you want to say, Glenn, before we finish? I don't. I think that the problem that we have, going back to the very first thing we said, I think that the problem we have with understanding how you can have a world that is enchanted 
with air conditioning yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is a great case of category confusion. Yeah. Mm. And I'll just leave it at that. Okay, good. Well, this has been a great episode. I don't have anything necessarily more to add. Anything you want to wrap up? I'm going to leave it with what Glenn said. All right. (laughs) All right, well, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast. We'll be with you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye Bye now. Yeah, I think you're right.